Let's open our Bibles this morning. We're in Genesis. We're in chapter 21. We're studying the life of Abraham, going through Genesis chapter by chapter and verse by verse. We find ourselves this morning as a text in Genesis 21, verses 1 through 21. The topic we find there is this. It's the weaning of Isaac that is accompanied by two very different types of laughing. And so the title of our message this morning is Laughing Matters. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we do thank you for your word. And Lord, as I am uh, reminded by you each week, the Holy Spirit is truly our teacher. Uh, I pray that the words I speak, Lord, would only in some way explain a few things, but really we'd be depending on the spiritual input of the Spirit into our hearts to uh, apply these things and to, to show us Jesus on this Uh, on these pages. Lord, when you walked with the two on the road to Emmaus, you went all through the Old Testament and you showed all the places where you were there, Lord, on the pages of Scripture. Uh, And certainly you're in this text very prominently, Lord, because you uh, speak to several individuals in this text in an appearance before you were incarnate. But in a deeper sense, Lord, we see your grace and your mercy, your love, the mystery of the romance that you have for your children. Uh, I pray that all of that would come to our heart in a very powerful way as we humble ourselves before you. We thank you and praise you. We do it in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. According to some researchers, there are more than 50 distinct types of laughter. And I would have to say that there's probably more than that. How you laugh can send very different signals. Research for a TV comedy channel linked the following types of laughter with inward states of mind. The belly laugh, they said, was uh, from a person who is open and trustworthy. Chuckling, kind and thoughtful. Cackling, enjoying the misfortune of others. (laughs) Snorting, a snobbish expression of disapproval. And sniggering, insensitive, unsympathetic, and immature. Kind of laughter that my titles get every Sunday. But uh, anyway, (laughs) deservedly so. Laughter plays an important role in our text. There are two very distinct types of laughter. The first is pretty obvious. At Isaac's birth, Sarah said in verse six, God has made me laugh and all who hear will laugh with me. The name Isaac, in fact, means laughter. It's a derivative of that. Isaac's weaning a few years later is also accompanied by a joyous laughter and rejoicing. The second type of laughter isn't immediately obvious in our English Bible. It's in verse nine where you read that Ishmael was scoffing. It's the same Hebrew word translated laugh in verse six. It's one of those types of laughter that is negative. Now, this whole episode takes on more significance when the Apostle Paul chooses it as an illustration comparing two ways of continuing in the Christian life. Writing to the churches in the region of Galatia, he compared believers who continued to depend upon the power of God to Isaac He compared those who live according to man-made rules in their own human energy to Ishmael. The Christians in Galatia had a choice to make. Believers in every geography and every generation have that same choice to make. As Warren Wiersbe puts it, individual churches and Christians can make the same mistake the Galatians were making. They can fail to cast out Hagar and Ishmael, giving opportunity for the flesh to work. 
We'll see what that means in a moment. Focusing on their respective laughters, I'll organize my thoughts around two questions. Number one, is yours the kind of laughter that rejoices at the power of God? Or number two, is yours the kind of laughter that scoffs at the power of God? Let's take a look in verses one through seven at rejoicing that kind of laughter. Now, Abraham, he's 100 years old. Sarah's 90 years old. Besides that, Sarah had passed through the change of life and naturally speaking, could not expect to become pregnant. Her womb, we might say, was dead. But she did become pregnant and Isaac was born according to the power of God in fulfilling his 25-year-old promise. And so verse one reads, the Lord visited Sarah as he had said and the Lord did for Sarah as he had spoken. For Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the set time of which God had spoken to him. Now the phrases that jump out at us that apply to believers in every generation might be as he had said, as he had spoken, at the set time. The one that we struggle with is at the set time. We generally believe God will do as he has said and spoken, but we don't know his timing And as a result of that, our faith struggles. God had his own set time in order to accomplish something truly wonderful for Abraham and Sarah. I wonder how many miraculous things we might miss because we won't wait for God's set time. Many a young man or a young woman has grown impatient waiting for God's set time to introduce them to their mate and they have sadly settled for their own choice. Whole churches can make mistake of growing impatient, waiting for God's set time by seeking to fulfill his promises by human energy using techniques you might find in the world, upselling or intimidation or heaping guilt on people. Not a week goes by that I don't get a flyer in the mail from a capital company uh, that wants to mount a capital campaign in the church. Uh, And by that they mean a fundraising campaign. And they all make guarantees. They all have testimonies and they make guarantees. And based on your church's demographic and the patterns of giving and the, you know, all these different mathematical, algorithmical kinds of things, they can guarantee you a certain amount of money for your capital campaign. Now, I don't know about you, but I have a hard time believing that that is, uh, that is God that is from the Holy Spirit, Uh, if somebody comes in and says, we're gonna take some mathematical data and then guarantee you what God is going to do. Well, no, you're gonna guarantee what people are going to do when you upsell them and put guilt on them and mesmerize them with your fuzzy math. That's what you're going to do. And so, you know, sometimes I wanna pray for a million dollars, don't you? What if God wants to give you 10 million dollars? Ooh, maybe I'll pray for 10 million dollars. What if God wants to give you 100 million? You know, you understand? I'd settle for the million. But anyway, uh, the idea is that if God is in something, you know, he's gonna give you what he wants to give you. Maybe God doesn't wanna give you a million dollars. Maybe there's some other lesson. Maybe you're in an Abraham and Sarah kind of a mode where there's 25 years that they have to wait for the fulfillment of this promise because God is also preparing them. And so the idea that, you know, that a lot of times churches have that we can guarantee this or we're going to do that or this is how God, that's not from the Lord. That's from the flesh. 
And so we want to avoid those kinds of things, growing impatient for God's set time. Verse three, and Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him, Isaac. When God had at first promised Abraham and Sarah would become pregnant and bear him a son, she laughed from behind a hiding place uh, in the tent. With a godly humor, the Lord told her to name the boy Isaac, meaning laughter. I, I like, God has a sense of humor. It's a wonderful uh, ironic and beautiful sense of humor. And so <clears throat> Abraham, uh, you know, God announced to Abraham he was gonna have a son and Sarah had been eavesdropping in the tent and it caught her by such surprise that she chuckled uh, and, and, or snortled or sniggered or she did something. <laughs> and God, of course, heard her and then she denied it and he, she, he said, no, you laughed. And as a result of that, you're gonna name your child laughter as a reminder of this episode. It's kind of, it's actually kind of endearing. Verse four, then Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old as God had commanded him. Circumcision of the flesh was always intended to be a reminder that a person must be spiritually circumcised in their heart. The physical right pointed to what was wrong with us, that we were born in trespasses and sins needing to be saved. We had an old nature that needed to be dealt with and we needed to receive a new nature from God. God wants to give us a new heart and that is what he does when we are saved. Isaac was circumcised after his miraculous birth, obviously. If you've been born again, the Bible says, and this is a quote from Colossians, you were circumcised in the putting off of the sinful nature, not with a circumcision done by the hands of men, but with the circumcision done by Christ. That means the Bible says the sin nature you were born with was spiritually cut away when you became a Christian and you were given the new nature of God, the heavenly nature. Now, as long as we are in these bodies, our unredeemed physical bodies that are not fit for heaven, we're gonna be subject to the vestiges of the influence and the inclinations of our flesh to yield our members to sin. But our sin nature has been cut away and we have received a new nature and we can therefore instead yield our members to serving God. Uh, Paul makes a big deal about this, the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans, especially chapter six, where he's explaining how to really continue in the Christian life. We studied it a few weeks ago on Wednesday night. And he says, look, you need to count these things to be true, that your old nature has been cut away You've had the circumcision of your heart. You have God's nature. You can yield to that rather than yield to what's left over in your flesh. And as Christians realize this more and more, they begin to walk in a new victory that the Lord has for us. And so verse five, now Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. It had been 25 years since Abraham left his home to follow the Lord, 25 years to receive the promise of God for a son and an heir. Now, concerning eternity, that's not even a drop in the bucket. It doesn't qualify as a drop at all. Uh, but 25 years is a long time, humanly speaking. Uh, and that's how long Abraham had been waiting. Has God said something to you? Has he spoken to you through his word or in some other way that's in keeping with his word? Then in his set time, he's going to perform what he has spoken by his power. He's preparing you to receive it. Remain patient. Wait on the Lord and it will be wonderful. Verse six, 
And Sarah said, God has made me laugh and all who hear will laugh with me. She also said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? For I have borne him a son in his old age. God had made Sarah laugh many years earlier, but it was that snickering from unbelief. Now he had made her laugh again, transforming that into a laughter of rejoicing. Especially in her culture, in the culture of, of uh, the, you know, the Abraham and Sarah, to be childless was like a curse. And here she was, 90 years old, And she finally had a child and she was excited. I don't know how many of you ladies would be excited to have a child at 90, uh, but she was excited. I have to explain this. I mean, this, to me, you know, uh, it wouldn't be, I'm 56 and I don't want to have any more children, you know, but he's 100 and they're, they're, wow, this is exciting. And it was, it was truly exciting. She was rejoicing at this. It was a great fulfillment. Not only that, her whole life would become a source of laughter for others. They would hear this story of God's promise, see its fulfillment by God's power, and they would laugh with the joy of the Lord. I mean, people who met Abraham and Sarah and said, man, aren't you guys kind of old to be having children? Oh, let let us tell you this story. What an instant witness this is. What are you doing at age 100 and uh, having a kid? Well, we've been waiting 25 years for the child of God's promise to us. And, And people would get excited about that and laugh about it. Sarah's womb was dead, but from it God brought new life. Do you realize you were dead in trespasses and sins? Then at God's set time, if you're a Christian, you heard the gospel, you were born again into that newness of life. If like me, you were saved later in life, delivered from many terrible things and from life-dominating sins, you laughed with rejoicing in the joy of your salvation. It may have been accompanied with tears, but they were tears of joy when the forgiveness of God washed over your life. Maybe you were a religious person uh, and and you had tried in many different ways to live a life pleasing to God, but of course we're always falling short and realizing that you were failing and then finally God opened your eyes and he let you see that it was by his grace through faith that he could justify you and declare you righteous based on the work of Jesus Christ and what a rejoicing that was to know that it was all by the power of God and by the work of God, and that you could simply receive it as a gift. Probably everyone you knew could see the change in you, and they laughed too, some of them with rejoicing, but others with scoffing, which brings us to Ishmael in verses 8 through 21, scoffing at the power of God. Sarah probably thought everyone would be laughing with rejoicing, but there was at least one person who was not. Verse 8, So the child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the same day that Isaac was weaned. Now, I'm not sure at what age a child was weaned 4,000 years ago. Doesn't really matter when a child in the Bible was weaned. It's relative to your your own time and culture. I only mention this because there's always a lot of arguing going on about when children are weaned. Uh, A lot of people make biblical arguments, but you know, you have to base it on the culture and what was going on with Abraham and Sarah, and uh, it doesn't really matter when children in the Bible were weaned, only that they get weaned. All right? So just hear me on that. Now, whenever it was that uh, he was weaned, Abraham threw a feast. I was wondering if we should have weaning feasts. We could call them, are you ready? Weaning roasts. 
Go ahead, snicker all you want. Sniggering, snickering, chortling, chuckling. It's all the same to me. I will suggest this. Do everything you can to rejoice at milestones, however small, in your family. Because if you haven't figured it out yet, there will be enough tragedy and trouble in your life. Uh, And so anything that you can do uh, to uh, rejoice with your family at at little things, elevating them to big things, uh, take advantage of that. Now verse nine, Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian whom she had born to Abraham, scoffing. Big half-brother Ishmael, he's 16 or 17 years old at this time. He's not a little boy. I think it's safe to say there had been no weaning roast for him. Although Abraham's son, his legal status was that of a servant in that household. Actually, it would be a slave, but sometimes slave carries a different connotation to our minds than in this culture. It's still not a good thing to be a slave, but it, it's not uh, you know, exactly what we're thinking of. Uh, It's not abject slavery. They had rights, but he was a servant in that household. Even though Abraham was his father, he didn't have any legal rights. And so verse 10, therefore she said to Abraham, cast out this bondwoman and her son, for the son of this bondwoman shall not be heir with my son, namely with Isaac. Now Sarah's demand seems harsh. That's because we read into this our own culture and its values. I'm not saying that this was something to be taken lightly or to base our own family discipline upon, but it was an acceptable discipline given the legal status of Hagar and Ishmael as servants. This is more similar to dismissing a servant than disowning a son. We read this as if they're being disowned and cast out into the desert to die, but Sarah is simply saying uh, we need to dismiss Hagar and uh, Ishmael as our servants and get rid of them at this point. Now, the matter was very displeasing in Abraham's sight because of his son. Abraham was against this idea. I don't think it's going too far to say that he loved Ishmael. He was troubled by it, of course, until he heard from the Lord in verse 12. But God said to Abraham, do not let it be displeasing in your sight because of the lad or because of your bondwoman. Whatever Sarah has said to you, Listen to her voice, for in Isaac your seed shall be called, yet I will also make a nation of the son of the bondwoman, because he is your seed. Uh, By the way, I'm told that this is the most uh, frequently underlined verse in a woman's Bible, uh, verse 12, listen to her voice. Very important. And actually, it'd probably be the most underlined verse in a man's Bible. Uh, So guys, hang on to your Bible. Uh, Don't let your wife have an opportunity to read that or underline it. But anyway, uh, Abraham could send Ishmael away with confidence that God would be with him. And so God told him, he said, Abraham, you're going to have to send him away. Listen to your wife. She's on board with what needs to happen, but I'm going to take care of Ishmael. In verse 14, so Abraham rose early in the morning, took bread and a skin of water and putting it on her shoulder, he gave it and the boy to Hagar and sent her away. And then she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. Again, this reads harshly, uh, but God knew what he was going to do for Hagar and Ishmael and Abraham's part was to obey God. Verse 15, and the water in the skin was used up and she placed the boy under one of the shrubs and then she went and sat down across from him at a distance of about a bow shot 
For she said to herself, let me not see the death of the boy. So she sat opposite him and lifted her voice and wept. It sounds like Abraham sent them out into the wilderness to die. But I'm guessing he told them to make for one of the cities, maybe even Gerar, where he had recently been treated with great hospitality. And so that's undoubtedly what happened. Abraham heard from the Lord, gave Hagar enough provision to get where she was going. Maybe Gerar, last week, if you're here for the study, you know that Abraham had spent some time there after a rocky start. Uh, the king of Gerar, Abimelech, had given him the key to the city, told him he could live wherever he wanted to. He had favor with those people. They were nice people, not like the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. And so it would have been easy for Hagar and Ishmael to go back to Gerar or one of the other cities of the plains and have a life for themselves. Uh, evidently, Hagar made a wrong turn. Her GPS ran out of batteries or something. Uh, she was using an Android phone instead of an iPhone. Uh, and lost, the, lost, she thought they were going to die. Uh, and so now, God sometimes deals with individuals severely in order to draw their attention to their true condition. They are lost and dying. God's mercies can seem severe mercies, and many times they are, but in the light of eternity, they are really precious opportunities. I remember uh, years ago when uh, AIDS was fairly new, uh, Harvest Christian Fellowship did a video on AIDS uh, with what was known at the time, but really it was a series of testimonies at the end by AIDS patients Uh, and these particular patients turned out to be Christians. And I'll never forget this one individual. He was uh, dying of AIDS, uh, obviously in the last days of his life, uh, and his testimony at the end, he said he would rather uh, have AIDS and be a Christian than not have AIDS and not be a Christian. And so he had come to grips with the fact that his disease at that particular time, though severe, was God's mercy to bring him to faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, and so we see uh, Hagar and Ishmael, and think, man, that is severe. You know, bondwoman, all these years with Abraham. Ishmael's her son. Now they're out in the wilderness, and they're gonna die. Uh, but uh, God is going to intervene. Uh, it is really an opportunity for them, even though it seems severe. And so in verse 17, God heard the voice of the lad, then the angel of God called to Hagar out of heaven and said to her, what ails you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the lad where he is. Arise, lift up the lad, and hold him with your hand, for I will make him a great nation. I don't know what Ishmael said. I do know that people cry out to God when all hope is lost, and I know that God hears those cries. Every now and then there's a debate, an argument, People say, does God hear the prayers of non-believers? Uh, and, and some people want to say, no, he doesn't, you know, he can't. Or other. And I think, you know, God's pretty omniscient and he's pretty omnipresent. He's pretty omni-everything. And, and so, yeah, he hears those cries. Uh, he, in fact, he sent the Holy Spirit into the world to, uh, to share Christ with people so that they will cry out to him. Uh, have you ever cried out to God before you were a Christian? Do you ever have a situation like that? I had several when I was just a teenager. Now, I, I didn't act on them. I, I kind of thought I was fooling God. You know, I remember one in particular where I, I really, it was worse than thinking I was gonna die. I thought I was going to go insane. Uh, I was having what used to be called a bad drug trip. 
Uh, and, and I honestly, literally thought that I had gone insane. Uh, and I was crying out to God. I said, God, if you will just help me through this, if you would just get me through this, uh, I'm yours, I'll do anything you want. And God got me through that, and I promptly forgot that. Uh, but God is merciful and gracious in those ways. I believe that he hears those cries, and he acts upon them in a way to uh, bring the gospel to individuals. Uh, and as long as there's life, there is hope. Uh, I don't care how bad a person is, what their sin is, as long as they are alive, there is an opportunity for them to trust Christ. After they die, it's appointed unto men once to die, and after this, the Bible says, comes judgment. There is no second chance after death. There is no purgatory or any such place where people can think about uh, the, you know, what they should have done or suffer enough to earn salvation. It just doesn't happen. But while someone is alive, there's every opportunity, and God will bring them uh, many blessings or severe mercies, depending on his plan, uh, to try and share Christ with them. Uh, and so verse nine, God opened her eyes. She saw a well of water, ah, and she went and filled the skin with water and gave the lad a drink. Sometimes the answer's right in front of you, isn't it? How many times have you shared with a family member or a friend that the answer is right in front of them. It's a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And they're thinking, no, you don't understand what my problem really, this is my problem. My problem is financial. My problem is emotional. My problem is, uh, you know, my job. My problem is this. My pro No, you don't understand. Your problem is you're a sinner who needs Christ, and when you receive Christ and his living water, then all these other things will have the proper perspective, and people, they're short-sighted. They just want help with what they perceive to be their problem. They're missing the big issue. Uh, and so right in front of her is this well, which would keep them alive, and obviously it becomes a spiritual analogy. God wanted her to lead her son to the water that would give him life. Uh, and certainly that was physical, but also spiritual. And so verse 20, so God was with the lad, and he grew and he dwelt in the wilderness and became an archer. He dwelt in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. Now, was Ishmael saved in this encounter? After all, it says that God was with the lad. I don't know. God is with everyone in the sense that God the Holy Spirit is seeking to lead men and women and children to faith in Jesus Christ. All men benefit from the common grace of God without all men receiving salvation by grace through faith. If Ishmael is an example of God's dealings with the non-believer, it's a comfort to see just how far God will go to reach even those who mock him and mock his power. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe on him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's what God is about today, is leading people to Christ. Now, God promised Abraham and Sarah a son and an heir. Almost immediately, and for 25 years afterwards, they set about trying to fulfill God's promise in the energy of the flesh. When the fulfillment of God's promise seemed to be taking too long, Abraham suggested one of his servants, a guy named Eleazar, be his heir. When it seemed to be taking even longer, Sarah suggested Abraham have a child by her maidservant, Hagar. When it seemed impossible for God to fulfill his promise, Abraham suggested that the child of Hagar, Ishmael, be considered his heir. 
All of that was the flesh at work seeking to help God achieve his spiritual purpose. It's a really, you know, sometimes we use these terms, the flesh and walking in the spirit and all, and you think, well, you know, I gotta get a handle on that. This is a good way to get a handle on it. God says, I'm gonna do this. It's gonna be great. You guys are gonna have a kid and he's gonna be the child of promise. And then they start thinking, well, how's that gonna happen? I'm old, you're old, maybe it's Eleazar. No, it's not Eleazar. Oh, here's an idea. Here's what other people in the world do. They get a surrogate to have their child for them, and then that'll be the child. No, it's not going to be Ishmael. And then even after all that, Abraham says, can it just be Ishmael? It's all the flesh trying to fulfill the promise of God. Uh, And so it's a good example of what we're talking about. And then when Ishmael finally, as a teenager is mocking in his laughter, that's that same attitude of trusting in the flesh, laughing with scorn, not believing that God is accomplishing his purposes and his power. Now, whenever we put our flesh to work, seeking to help God achieve a spiritual purpose, things that can only be achieved by his power, we are laughing the way Ishmael laughed. We may not actually be laughing, but that's our attitude. And so God has these spiritual promises and purposes for us, and then we say, okay, this is how we are going to achieve them by the energy of the flesh. Now, the very suggestion that we are like Ishmael offends us. The trouble is we can be like him without even realizing it, and in fact, in some cases, we are taught that it's the best way to follow Jesus. There are still legalistic churches and Christians who project extra-biblical, man-made rules upon you by which you are judged to be either more spiritual or less spiritual. Your salvation was not obtained by any effort of yours, and neither is it maintained by any effort of yours. It's all by grace from start to finish. Writing to the Galatians, to whom he used the illustration of Ishmael and Isaac, Paul asked them this question. It's from Galatians 3, verse 3, in a uh, translation called God's Word. Did you begin in a spiritual way only to end up doing things in a human way. Now the truth is, if you're a Christian, you began in a spiritual way. You were born again. The flesh was cut away. You were completely filled with the Holy Spirit. Later on, we have a tendency to want to be more like Abraham and Sarah and help God out by returning to the flesh. In the case of the Galatian believers, here's what that meant. Most of them were Gentiles. They had no relation to the Jewish religion or any Jewish rites or rituals or traditions. But after they got saved, got saved spiritually, they're doing well, they're walking in the spirit, some guys come in and they say, are you guys saved? Yeah, we're saved. You're almost saved. What do you mean? Well, you've received Christ, but you also need to be circumcised and you also need to keep the Sabbath There's some dietary rules that you need to, there's a few things from the law of Moses that you need to do to maintain your salvation and be really saved. And so Paul the apostle wrote to the Galatians, he says, oh foolish Galatians, who has so easily bewitched you? Having begun in the spirit, are you now made perfect in the flesh? Paul would have none of that. And he ended up calling those guys dogs, the false teachers, not the kind of dog that you uh, have at home, that you love and who sleeps with you and is so cute. He's talking about these weird third world dogs that want to kill you, (laughs) that pack together and they say, there's Gene Pensiero, he needs rabies. Uh, 
It's one of my fears when I traveled overseas is I'm going to be bit by a dog and left for dead by my companions. But anyway, uh, <laughs> just one of the things I live with. Scoffing at the power of God still takes that form today. We see, by the way, it's interesting, many believers in Jesus Christ today, Gentile Christians who have been walking in the Spirit, are suddenly discovering Judaism. And they're wanting to adopt Jewish rituals and practices. And, and they're starting to keep the Sabbath on Friday as, you know, sundown Friday to sundown Saturday as well as going to church on Sunday and some of these other things, believing, you know, that it makes them more spiritual and uh, projecting it onto others. But even if that's not the case, all of you have run into people who will ask, hey, have you been baptized? And lucky for you if you have, because if you haven't, they start telling you that you're not really saved if you haven't been baptized. And and we better not get into an auto wreck between here and the King's River uh, because you'll die and go to hell if you're not baptized. And then you have to be baptized a certain way in order for for you to really be saved. Maybe it's not baptism. Some of the Pentecostals will tell you that you're not really saved if you don't speak in tongues. And, and so they'll, they'll say, well, do you, uh, you know, do you speak with tongues? No. Well, that's the evidence of receiving the Holy Spirit. So you have not received the Holy Spirit, so therefore you're probably not really saved. So you'd better get on this thing. Well, how do I do that? Well, here's, a, here's some phrases to say really fast. And, and it's sad, but then people think, okay, well, I'll do that. Now, there is a gift of tongues, but not everybody has that. And so there are things, those are two of the most popular ones, but there are things people will come and tell you, this is what you have to do. We do it on a lesser scale whenever we project our own ideas about living the Christian life, what works for me. There's some things I can do, things I can't do, and then I look at you and say, you should be just like me. If you're doing something I can't do or not doing something I do, you're probably not as spiritual as me. And, and, and we, we go through life doing this kind of thing and Paul would have none of it. He would say, hey, that, that has nothing to do with the Christian life. It's started by grace through faith in Jesus Christ by the power of God and that's how it continues. And, and so don't be getting back into the flesh. And he tells the Galatians, he says, cast out the bondwoman and her child, and he's talking about the law of Moses and all these rites and rituals, but it could apply to anything that we want to add to the gospel by which we think we maintain our salvation. As you prepare to re-enter the world and affect the people God has sent you to minister among, listen to the laughter of your heart. Is there any area in which you are scoffing at God? Probably not, but if there is, get rid of that and just return to rejoicing at the joy of your salvation. Let us be those who rejoice, having begun in the Spirit, let's continue to walk in the Spirit. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.